Welcome and thanks for listening to the Community Christian Church Podcast. To learn more about Community Christian Church, visit us online at cccsterling.org. Today's message comes from Joy Gruitz. Good morning, good morning. One of the first songs that I learned about grace was when I was just a young child in Sunday school. And the song was very simple. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little did I realize at the time what an incredible gift the Bible is. That through God's inspired words recorded in this book of books, Jesus' redeeming love is revealed to us and God's amazing grace is unveiled. But then as I got older, I gained a deeper appreciation and a deeper understanding of the message of grace that is woven throughout the Word of God. But I also began to grasp the beauty, the literary beauty of the Bible, how it consists of a variety of genres from narratives to poetry to discourse, as well as a variety of literary devices like imagery and foreshadowing and similes, all designed to help us grasp the amazing grace of our God the sustaining, sanctifying, saving grace of our Lord. And one literary device that Jesus used was the metaphor. In John chapter 11, Jesus said, I am the shepherd and you are the sheep. And with this metaphor, he's not saying that he's an actual shepherd and we are actually sheep. But through this word pictures, he's describing the kind of relationship we are to have with him. That as our shepherd, he is to lead and guide and care for us. That's his desire. And we are to be his sheep who follow him, who listen to his voice. Then in John 15, Jesus uses the metaphor of the grapevine. When he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. And just as the branch of a grapevine is to be connected to the trunk of that vine so it can produce fruit, so too we are to be connected to Jesus so that we can bear the fruit of good works. But then when we go to the Old Testament, to the book of Isaiah, there is yet another another powerful metaphor, and we find it in Isaiah 68.4. When the Lord spoke this to Isaiah, he said, I am the potter and you are the clay. Now, because the extent of my art education is limited to a seventh grade art exploratory class, I knew that to understand the meaning behind this metaphor, I needed to do some research. And what I quickly discovered is that it takes great skill to be a potter. For a potter to take a lump of clay and create a beautiful piece of pottery, what the Bible would call a vessel takes great skill and involves a process. You see, it begins with the potter sitting at a potter's wheel, and he takes that lump of clay, and they say they actually throw it on the center area of the potter's wheel. Then the potter, as he's sitting at that wheel, he turns it on, and that lump of clay begins to spin. But it's uneven, it's off balance, it's kind of wobbly. So he dips his hands in water. Then he takes his elbow and he securely anchors each elbow on the inside of each thigh. And then he takes his hand and he cups his hand and he begins to add pressure to that spinning lump of clay. 
He takes pressure with the left hand, presses inward. With the other hand, he presses downward. And with an even pressure, he begins to move his hands up and down on that lump of clay until the clay is centered on the potter's wheel. This is called the centering. Now once the centering is complete, then he does the opening and the forming and the shaping of that clay into a vessel. And then of course he then takes it, puts it into a kiln where it's fired, it's glazed and refired. But in my research, what I discovered is that the most important part of the process is the centering. You see, if that lump of clay is not centered on the potter's wheel, whatever shape it takes, it will be misshapen. It can be out of balance and it can end up being a cracked and broken vessel. And what is true in the natural relates to us spiritually. You see, Isaiah said that God is the potter and we are the clay. And that means we must be centered on the wheel of God's will that we must submit to the centering hand of our heavenly potter so we can be shaped into a vessel of honor, the vessel of honor that God desires each one of us to be so he can pour into us what he desires that we pour into the lives of others. But how many know there are times in our lives when it's easy to get knocked off center, to lose our balance, to even become broken? And I think this is what happened to the disciple Peter. Remember, Peter was one of the closest disciples of Jesus. Now, several times leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, there were times during this ministry that he would take his disciples aside and he would prepare them for that moment. He would tell them, there's going to come a time when I'm going to be taken from you and I'm going to suffer and die at the hands of the Jewish leaders. But on the night before he is crucified, he adds one thing. He said, not only will they take and I will suffer and die, but when I am apprehended, when I'm taken from you, you are going to run for your lives. Well, all of the disciples, they all said, no, we will never, we will never run, we will never desert you. But you know, We all know what happened, right? But it was Peter. Peter was the one of all the disciples who made this statement in Mark 14, 29. He said, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. And I don't believe that this was, you know, an act of bravado. I truly believe Peter believed that he would never, ever desert or deny Jesus. But Jesus turned to him and said in verse 30, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. Peter, you're not only going to run, you're not only going to deny me, but you're going to deny that you even know me. Not just that you're a disciple, but you even know me. And Peter now was even more adamant. He says, no, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. Well, later that night when the temple guards came along with the mob and they took Jesus away, indeed, all the disciples ran, even Peter. But then Peter got at a safe distance and then he followed, followed the mob where they were taking Jesus to the house of the high priest. 
And once there, Peter entered the courtyard. He's trying his best to keep a very low profile. He doesn't want anyone to know that he's a disciple of Jesus, but at the same time, he wants to know what's going to happen to his Jesus. But while he is there, three different people confront Peter, and three times Peter denies Jesus. And as soon as that third denial came out of his mouth, the rooster crowed. And we read this most poignant verse in the scriptures. We read it in the book of Luke 22, verse 61. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Can you imagine that moment? Apparently, Jesus is somewhere where he can see Peter in the courtyard, and Peter can see Jesus. And in the moment that last denial left his lips, Jesus looked at Peter. And in that moment, the next verse says, And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he has said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept, what? Bitterly. He wasn't just broken, but he was bitterly broken. And adding the salt to this wound of denial was the fact that earlier in Christ's ministry, when everyone was wondering who this man Jesus is, I mean, he was preaching with power, he was performing miracles, and people were saying, what is the true identity of this man Jesus? And remember, it was Peter. Peter, who received the divine revelation that you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God. And it was with that divine revelation that Jesus gave to Peter a divine assignment. Peter, you are going to be a rock, and upon this rock I will build my church. Peter, you are going to have a divine assignment to establish my church here on earth. But I think when Peter heard the rooster crow, When he saw the Lord look at him in that moment, Peter knew that Jesus knew that he had denied him. I think this is why Peter ran away weeping so bitterly. You see, fear, fear had knocked him off center and left in its wake a man filled with guilt and shame, a broken vessel. Now sorrow and despair filled all the disciples on the day that Jesus was crucified. All day Friday, all day Saturday, they were filled with great sorrow, despair, even doubt and confusion. But on Sunday, on the day that Jesus was resurrected, when they saw Jesus appear to them, all of that sorrow, all that despair was replaced with a heart of great joy. They were rejoicing Not only that Jesus was alive, but everything they believed about him was indeed true. And I believe that Peter, his heart was filled with joy as as well. But I think his joy was dampened by the weight of those three denials that weighed heavy on his heart. You see, Peter is still a believer. He's still a follower of Christ. But I think in that moment, he thinks that his denials have disqualified him that that divine assignment has been withdrawn. And so instead of being a fisher of men, he decides he'll just be a fisher of fish. And so Peter, along with some of his fellow disciples one morning, 
They had been fishing all night on the Sea of Tiberias, and the Bible says they caught no fish. It seems to be their issue all the time. They're fishermen, but never catching any fish. But they notice that there's a man, as they're coming to shore, they notice that there's a man on the shore, and he's got some fish, and he's cooking it over a campfire. And when they realize that it's Jesus, they, they bring their boat to shore, and they enjoy a fish breakfast with Jesus. But it is during this time, during this encounter, that Jesus has a personal conversation with Peter. And I wonder if this was a moment that Peter was going to dread. The moment that Jesus would finally confront him about those denials. But in this private conversation, Jesus never confronts Peter. There are no accusations. You see, Jesus could have said, you know, Peter, I told you so. I told you you were going to deny me, and you were so sure, you were so confident. But you not only, not only did you desert me, you indeed, you denied me three times. But there was no accusation. There was no condemnation. Church, there was only grace. There was only grace because in this conversation, what Jesus said to Peter, he asked Peter one question three times. Peter, do you love me? And each time his affirmation was yes, yes, Jesus, I love you. And with each yes, Jesus gave Peter a directive. First it was, care for my lambs, feed my sheep, care for my sheep. As I thought about this, I said, why, why three directives? Why ask this question three times? Why not two, condense it? Or why not expand it, make it four? Why does Jesus use three? I think it was because Jesus was offering Peter the opportunity to replace those denials with three fresh commitments to Jesus. You see, this is the effect of God's amazing grace that he made it possible for Peter to be re-centered and re-commissioned. Jesus didn't undo those denials, but he offered Peter the opportunity to be re-centered and re-commissioned. And when we look at the effect of God's redeeming grace, we see it in the book of Acts when Peter becomes indeed that vessel of honor who establishes Christ's church here on earth. And not only does Peter do that, but he opens the door of grace to the Gentiles. Now, we may not fear for our lives like Peter did, but fear can knock us off center. You know, we may fear what others think of us because of what we believe, or the fear that we might be canceled because of our faith. Or we may fear what it's going to cost us to be that vessel of honor. Or maybe just the craziness of the world that's going on instills fear in us that knocks us off center. So fear can knock us off center, but that's not the only thing. Wrecked expectations can do the same. When our expectations collide with reality, we can be wrecked. And I believe this is what happened to a young Jewish boy, this young Jewish man actually, named John Mark. 
John Mark was a passionate Christ follower in the first century Jerusalem church. And when the apostles Paul and Barnabas are commissioned to go on a very first missionary trip, they are going to, for the first time, spread the good news of God's grace into the Gentile world beyond the walls of Jerusalem, and they choose John Mark to go with them, that he's going to be part of this missionary team. But when you read the book of Acts, they are not long on this missionary trip when John Mark abruptly makes the decision to desert the mission field. He abandons Paul and Barnabas. Now, the Bible doesn't give us specific reasons of why John Mark made this abrupt decision. Maybe, maybe once he got on the mission field, sharing and preaching and teaching the gospel of grace was much more difficult than he thought. Or maybe the strong demonic opposition they faced on the Isle of Cyprus was too overwhelming. Or maybe living and working in this culture of idolatry was just too jarring for this good Jewish boy. Or maybe just the transient lifestyle, the difficult, precarious lifestyle of a missionary was more uncomfortable than he thought it would be. Whatever the reasons, I believe it was wrecked expectations. What he thought the mission field was going to be like what he expected it was going to be like to preach and teach the gospel of grace was wrecked by reality. And so he makes this choice to abruptly leave, and he is knocked off center. He's knocked off the center of God's will for his life. And I think once he got home, I think he was filled with remorse, even brokenhearted, that now he knew he was not centered on the Father's will. But God did not leave John Mark in that broken place. We, again, we don't know the details, but this we do know, that when Paul and Barnabas are ready to embark on the second missionary journey, you know who volunteers? John Mark. John Mark says, I want to go. I want to be part of this trip. I know I messed up last time, but I'm recentered. I know this is what God wants for me. I know this is my calling. I want to be part of the team. Well, Barnabas says, let's give the kid a second chance. But Paul? Paul's much more pragmatic. He said, I don't think so. I don't think this is a good idea at all. I mean, this next trip isn't going to be any easier than the first trip. We can't afford to have someone on our team that when things get difficult is suddenly going to desert us. We need everyone on this team. I just don't think he's ready. I don't think he's the right person. Well, there was this big disagreement, and they couldn't come to a resolution, so they said, you know what, I think this is what we'll do. Paul will take Silas, and he will go to the countries of Turkey and Syria and Greece, and Barnabas will take John Mark, and John Mark will return to the mission field. He'll go back and, with Barnabas, minister to the churches that they had established on the first missionary journey. John Mark, who was broken and off-center, was re-centered, and he again went on the mission field. But that's not the end of John Mark's story. If we fast forward to the end of Paul's life and ministry, he is in prison in Rome, nearing the end of everything that God was having him to do here on earth. And he writes a letter to a young minister called Timothy, whom he has mentored. 
And in this letter, he writes to Timothy that things are not going well in prison, that everyone that had been ministering with him in Rome, everyone but Luke has deserted him, and that he needs help with his ministry. You say, what kind of ministry can Paul have while he's in prison? He's not out preaching and teaching while he's writing. This is where he wrote the letters to the churches. And we read this one line of the letter in 2 Timothy 4.11. And in this line, we see the effect of God's grace. Paul writes, bring Mark with you when you come, for he will be helpful to me in my ministry. You know who the Mark they're talking about? John Mark. Paul says, bring John Mark, not just to be, you know, some company, but he's going to be helpful in my ministry. John Mark, the one-time deserter, is now the one that Paul sends for when he is deserted in Rome. John Mark, who at one point was regarded by Paul as unreliable and unfit for ministry, is the one that he specifically asked for to help me in this writing ministry. God restored John Mark. But still, that's not the end of his story. Because God then chose John Mark to write what we know as the Gospel of Mark. Matthew, Mark, that's the same. John Mark is Mark. Isn't that amazing? That here was a young man who was broken off center, and God, by His grace, recentered him, and he became a vessel of honor on the mission field, in prison with Paul, and he wrote the Gospel of Mark. But like John Mark, we too can be wrecked by expectations. They're not just reserved for the mission field. We can have expectations that collide with our reality, what we thought marriage would be like, or family life, or what we thought our career would be like, our financial situation, what we thought our ministry would be like, or maybe even where our health would be. Our expectations can collide with reality, and we can be wrecked. We can be knocked off center. But unfortunately, fear and wrecked expectations are not the only way that we can be knocked off center and be that broken vessel. Samson was knocked off center when he misused God's gift of strength. David was knocked off center when he gave in to the temptation of lust and committed the sin of adultery and murder. Naomi, she was knocked off center by the grief of losing not just her husband, but both her sons. These are just a few of the narratives that are woven throughout the Bible that reveal the many ways we can be knocked off center, but these life stories also reveal to us the effect of God's grace. That by God's grace, He can redeem our missteps, our mistakes, our wrong choices, our wrong decisions. And when the adversities of life, the experience of life that are difficult and painful and cause us to lose our balance, by His grace, He can recenter us again. You know, there is a nursery rhyme that says, Humpty Dumpty had a, no, sat on the wall. Then he had that great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men, they couldn't put Humpty Dumpty together again. But you know, we know a king, a king of kings and lord of lords, and he can put the pieces together again. 
You see, he did it for Peter, he did it for John Mark, he did it for David and Naomi. Their lives are testament to the effect of God's grace, his redeeming grace, that from the ashes of our brokenness, God can, can make and take us into the beauty of being that vessel of honor. Now, several years ago, a good friend of mine shared with me a vessel, a piece of pottery that she had received that was representative of a Japanese art called kintsugi. It's the art of repairing broken uh, pottery. And rather than discarding the broken pieces, the potter, with great artistic skill, takes some resin mixed with powdered gold or silver, and he puts that broken piece of pottery back again, together again, and it becomes a vessel of great beauty. Here is a picture of a vessel that was broken and through this art of kintsugi was made into this vessel of beauty. And as she shared that with me, as I recalled it, as I was preparing for this message, I thought about our God who is a miraculous artist. And when our life choices and life experiences leave us broken, God does not throw away the pieces. Do you hear me, church? God does not throw away the broken pieces, but by his redeeming grace, by the power of his Holy Spirit, he takes the pieces and he brings us back together again. And from the ashes of our brokenness, he creates the beauty of a vessel of honor. You know, he, he is a God who with the golden artistry of his hands can take whatever is broken and from that brokenness create beauty. Would you bow your heads? Perhaps this morning, you can identify with the brokenness of those we've learned about this morning. The brokenness of fear that, that knocked Peter off center, or like John Mark, wrecked expectations, or David, maybe temptations, or Naomi, you've been broken by the aching grief of losing a loved one. Or perhaps you've been knocked off center by the adversities of life. So this morning, if you are in that broken place, understand that God is still our potter. That by the power of his grace, he can take our brokenness and make us whole again. And so this morning, if you are someone that's in that broken place and you want him to redeem that brokenness, if you know that you need that recentering hand of the potter, I'm going to ask you if you just slip up your hand this morning. If you know that you need that recentering hand of the heavenly potter, you've experienced some brokenness, and you want, by his redeeming grace, to make you whole again from those ashes, create beauty. You can lower your hands. If you raise your hand this morning, I'm just going to ask that as I pray, let this be your prayer. Agree with me as I pray. Dear Father, we acknowledge that indeed you are the potter and we are the clay. We want our lives centered on your will. And this morning we give you the broken pieces of our lives, whether they've been broken through fear or wrecked expectations, temptations or grief, whatever, 
by your redeeming grace, Lord, take our brokenness. Use the creative artistry of your hands to mold us, to shape us, to restore us, to be that vessel of honor that you've created us to be. We approach your throne of grace. We thank you that you are a God of love and mercy, but above all, this morning, we are so grateful for your grace, your saving grace, your sanctifying grace, your sustaining grace, but also the grace, the redeeming grace to take our brokenness and make us into that vessel of honor. In Jesus' name, amen.